Hi everybody, and today is going to focus on offshore wind. I've got some great speakers for you today. My name is Dickon Howell. I am a director at HMC, but I'm also leading the uh, program director team for the Insight program. We're really ramping up that understanding of how this big body of evidence can inform decision-making both in the UK and, and overseas. So just to give you a bit of an oversight of the Insight programme, for those of you that don't know it, main objective is to provide stakeholders with the independent science evidence base needed to better understand the influence of man-made structures in the ecosystem of the North Sea, although some of our projects have been looking further afield, particularly our synthesis project, which has looked globally. So phase two of the programme that ranges from uh, looking at the functionality and ecological connectivity of man-made structures, how that affects aggregation production and spillover, all, all the way through to testing the limits of the UK's autonomous fleet and using AI to drive novel 3D imaging techniques to quantify biomass. And so when we're talking about offshore wind and the science base behind offshore wind, it's really important to consider the environment that we're in, the policy environment we're in at the moment. And this is quite UK-centric, but effectively we are in both a climate and biodiversity emergency and and the response to that needs to be ambitious on both sides and there is a lot of work to do to restore our marine environment back up to good status by 2030 and make sure that we can do that at the same time as meeting really ambitious climate goals so that's the so long-term framework that we're working within and then alongside that this massive drive from industry being given the incentives by government to go forward with with round four fixed offshore wind round three fixed which is going through the last projects going through application at the moment and then looking forward to floating um offshore wind both in the uk and in scotland so that's really really busy space it's moving really fast and getting good evidence into that space as soon as possible is super important so we've got four great speakers. We've got Cassie Rist from the DEFRA Offshore Wind Enabling Actions Programme, who's going to talk to us a bit about DEFRA's kind of plans at the moment. We've got Chrissy Mazik um, from the University of Hull, who's going to talk to us about some of the work that's going on in the Chasen's Programme. Paul Fernandez from Harriet Watt, who's going to talk to us about what's going on in the Fish Spams Programme. And Debbie Russell, he's going to talk to us about what's going on in the EcoStar Programme, but also with some of the marine mammals. Over to you, Cassie. Thank you so much. The way that we see this and our role uh, in this space is really delivering net zero and biodiversity gains. So it's not one or the other in our mind. It's definitely both at the same time. So as many of you will know, last fall, the British Energy Security Strategy was published and within it was an offshore wind environmental improvement package. And this really outlined kind of five key key cutting edge uh, new policies that we intend to kind of deliver this increase in offshore wind deployment while maintaining the government's high level protection of the marine environment. And I think it's really pertinent to say at this early stage that both collaboration with industry, SNCBs, scientists, etc., and evidence is really at the heart of what we're trying to do with the offshore wind environmental improvement package. And we're drawing on expertise from across government, across SNCBs, and across research programmes such as this one, and others um, such as the Offshore Wind uh, Evidence and Change programme that the Crown Estate's running, Poseidon, which is coming out of Natural England. And we really hope that we not only better understand our marine environment through this programme of work, but really ensure that our strategic solutions are the right ones to mitigate and manage the damage that we know offshore wind industry has on the marine environment. So summer being delivered through the energy bill, which is currently going through the House 
House of Parliament, which is new legislation to enact some of these changes. And some of them will be enabled through the National Policy Statement for Renewable Energy. So I'll go through them. I haven't got lots of time, so I'm happy to take questions at the end. But we'll start with um, environmental assessment reform. And this is really going to involve streamlining of HRA and MCZ assessments and really trying to move that consideration of mitigation and compensation to an earlier stage of an application for a DCO. And this will be accompanied by um, some guidance for practitioners, which will really hopefully clarify the understanding of the principles that underpin these processes. The second measure is offshore wind environmental standards. And these will sort of be a suite of impact reduction measures that are looking at three key receptors. So reducing the effect offshore wind has on endangered and protected bird species, protecting benthic ecology, which is essential to the overall integrity of our network, and marine mammals specifically looking at underwater noise. And in this sort of section of the programme, we are conducting sort of a sector-wide evidence review. We've commissioned a project on blade painting and its impact on um, potential mitigation uh, for bird collision, a project on sand wave levelling, um, and a year-long project that's looking at designing and piloting a decibel limit for piling. So all really exciting evidence-based work that we're doing to support these policy measures. Moving on to the third one, which is strategic compensation. We are bringing together stakeholders from across industry to design a set of fully evidence, a sort of library of measures, if you will, which will offer strategic protection of uh, habitats and seas. So this is really offering a developers an opportunity to work together to deliver impactful compensation at a strategic level and reduce the uncertainty of the consent of their projects, as most of these measures will be agreed upfront rather than further into the application cycle. And strategic compensation in this library of measures will be delivered through something we're calling the Marine Recovery Fund. And this is being set up where developers can really pay money into a centralised pot to deliver strategic compensation that they wouldn't be able to do on a project by project level. They'll choose a measure from the library and they'll use the fund to deliver that. So the aim of the MRF is really to support and enable developers to work in this strategic fashion um, and to take away some of the financial risk that's often involved in large scale compensation. And the final measure that we're looking at as part of the offshore wind and environmental improvement package is strategic monitoring. So we really hope this is going to be a sector wide sort of overhaul on, on how we do post consent monitoring, because while we know that developers do a lot of monitoring, there isn't necessarily the clearest plan on how all of this data is used once it's been collected. So really working with those um, SNCBs to set sort of strategic goals for monitoring and properly understand which receptors we want to know more about and how we can collect the data in a strategic way in, also, in, in order to do so. So outside of the uh, OE, DEFRA is also looking at delivering marine net gain. So taking from the principles of biodiversity net gain, this is going to be an approach to development which leaves the marine environment specifically in a better state than before protecting and restoring or creating environmental features that are of greater ecological value to wildlife and embedding environmental improvement really in the heart of our infrastructure and planning. And the final thing that we're looking at and working in DEFRA to do is something called marine spatial prioritization. We know that our seas are going to be extremely busy and they're only going to get busier with multiple users and new activities coming on stream such as strategic compensation. So we're building a better understanding of how to kind of maximize co-location between between sea users and really prioritise what we, how we can get the best out of our marine space. So that was a very brief overview, but thank you so much. I'll pass back to Dickin and happy to take questions at the end.
Thank you, Cassie. Um, next up, we've got Chrissy Mazek, who's going to talk to us um, about some of the work that's being done in the Chasen's programme. I'm Chrissy Mazek from the University of Hull. I'm a marine ecologist with general interests in the impacts of human activities on the marine environment. I've been working in offshore wind for quite some time, but most recently with, with Project Aura in Hull, which is a collaboration between industry and academia um, to try and kind of enhance research and innovation in, off, in offshore um, wind energy in this area. Um, and as part of that, we have a, a combined doctoral training programme um, joint with Newcastle, Durham, Sheffield and Hull. And we have around 70 PhD students at the moment uh, working across all kinds of areas of wind energy development from engineering right through to the ecology and the social sciences. So I'm representing the Chase Ants project um, on behalf of Joe Porter and the team um, Joe's the project leader, Harriet Watt. It's looking at oil and gas infrastructure and it's looking at um, offshore wind as well. So the aim of Chase Sands is to enhance our understanding of the connectivity of hard substrate epifaunal communities. And within that, we're thinking about the implications of decommissioning and this um, requirement under OSPAR 983 to remove disused offshore installations. At the moment, they're colonised by lots of species. You know, there are connectivity, there is connectivity between those structures. There's some arguments against that. So there's the, the rigs to reef argument. We know that these structures support um, high biodiversity. They provide habitat. They are highly productive. They may have a role in biogeochemical cycling. There's a role in seabed protection from trawling. And in a climate of kind of shifting baselines and increasing pressure from human activities and also from climate change, there is a role for that enhanced biodiversity. So we're thinking in this project about the implications of both removing structures from the seabed, but also what happens when you put more structures in. So with the, the projected scale of offshore wind development, we may be taking uh, oil and gas infrastructure away, potentially, but we may be putting it back with, with wind turbines. So with that in mind, I'm also representing the Bowie project, which is Benthic Offshore Wind Interactions, and it's funded under the EcoWind programme. And this project is led by Martin Solon at the University of Southampton. It's a collaboration between Hull, UEA, CFAS and the National Oceanography Centre. And we're aiming here to understand the cumulative responses of, of Benthos to the cumulative pressure of this large increase in deployment of offshore wind. But we're looking at that in combination with other pressures. With that in mind, the, the decommissioning and the expansion of offshore wind, uh, my colleague Simon Wallman has started to think about what the North Sea might look like by, by 2050, when we've had to install all this extra infrastructure to support the offshore wind industry. And Simon's given me some slides here that um, it's work in progress. So what Simon did was to look at the energy targets of across the, the North Sea nations over the next 10, 20 years. And for the UK, for example, by 2030, we're aiming for 50 gigawatts. By 2050, we're aiming for 65 to 125 gigawatts. And I think these targets are from 2022, and they may they may be moving targets, given the way the situation is changing, particularly with, with Ukraine and the implications that has. He started to ask if we need to produce this amount of energy, where is it going to go? So the first thing he did was look at areas of the North Sea that would be excluded from future development. So he's excluded the 12 mile limit because people don't want to see wind farms, but also the scale of the wind farms that are going to be built is probably too large to put in that coastal region. He um, excluded oil and gas infrastructure, pipelines, cables, shipping. In some nations, he has excluded MPAs and Nature 2000 sites where those nations 
have a regulation that prohibits any construction work on there. Essentially, what, what Simon is saying is that the, what's left is where future wind farms could be built. So when you consider that and account for the fact that wind turbines are expanding in size, so he's considered what the projected size of turbines is going to be over the next 10, 15, 20 years, and he's allowed for a spacing of seven rotor diameters between each turbine. Thinking back to the Chase Hands project and the issues of connectivity that we're thinking about in there, um, there are there are implications for that, you know, surrounding the, the spacing of turbines and the spacing of, of wind farm sites in the future. With that in mind, we've started to think in, in whole about what that means for um, habitat change. So essentially, when wind turbines are installed and all of the other infrastructure that goes with them, so the cabling, the substations, the met mass, all, all of that, it's essentially a change from a soft sedimentary habitat, which is what most of the North Sea is, to a hard substrata habitat big landscape scale change in the ecological resource in the North Sea as we change from this sedimentary environment to a habitat that's going to be colonised by mussels and anemones. There's a big potential for change in ecological function there as we go from a deposit feeding community, a, an infaunal community to an epifaunal filter feeding community. There are some potential benefits of this. So I've, I mentioned in the, the first slide um, when I talked about the Chase Hands project, the, the benefits uh, in terms of biodiversity and habitat provision and how we're working against this shifting baseline and we're working in a degraded system so enhancing biodiversity is important but at what point do we start to tip the other way in a sedimentary environment that can be enhanced by this hard substrata at what point does that become too much to the point that it changes the entire functioning of the system and then um, in other projects in Hull and Oral Accordier is thinking about the impacts of turbid wake so when you look at satellite images you can see See these brown streams of sediment coming from, from wind turbines and she's thinking about that in terms of what the implications might be for primary production and how is this going to impact on other users of the sea as well, so um, fishing aggregates for example. So we've taken three case study areas to look at this and we've essentially only looked at the monopiles and degree of hard substrata is going to be um, provided by these monopiles that are being put in place. So we've looked at Hornsey 1, 2 and 3, London Array and, and Rampion. And then thinking about the environment there as well, Hornsey is very sandy, so is London Array. But when, when you go to Rampion, there's these big areas of coarse mixed sediment and mussel beds. So the, the impact that this hard substrata has will be probably quite dependent on the in the seabed type that it's being installed in but essentially we're looking at a sort of 10 times gain in habitat so we're thinking of a losses of sort of 10 to 40,000 square meters of seabed and a gain in hard substrata of 10 10 11 times that so not only we're, we're not just losing soft sediment habitat we're gaining a much larger proportion of hard substrata habitat so the implications for this are loss of soft sediment habitat and all of the community functions that come from that so the biotech the biogeochemical cycling, there's potential changes for seabed characteristics, particle size, microtopography and organic matter. And that's important because some species are very, very particular about the, uh, the seabed type that they, they will inhabit and particularly for larval settlements.
settlement as well. There's implications for sediment dynamics and stability. Um, in the Southern North Sea, it's dynamically quite high energy. Um, so you don't get these big shell mounds form, forming, but in more calmer areas, there's potential for deposition of shell and, and anoxia to form. And I wonder what will happen there with the floating wind farms that are likely to be installed. And then from the hard substrata point of view, we're changing from infaunal to epifaunal communities, which is a change in feeding type. There's potential for a big increase in biomass. So at Horns Rev, there was between 50 and 150% um, increase in biomass there. And that has implications for predator-prey interactions. And then we've introduced an offshore intertidal area, which we didn't have before. And this community is profiled. It's not flat on the seabed. So these are just some of the issues that, you know, that, that we might need to think about in the context of this large-scale, long-term change in marine habitats in, in, in the sea. And there's been a lot of discussion on the ecological benefits of offshore structures in relation to oil and gas installations, but these are quite small in comparison to what is projected to be installed in the sea now. So the scale of offshore wind um, development is going to be massive, and it's a landscale change now. It's not a localised change, and a, a landscale change in, in community types. So I think it's important that we understand the ecological implications of that, and we need to understand that against this background of shifting baselines. Yes, I have to say when I was talking to you about this last week, it's very thought-provoking. Yes, so thank you very much. And I'm going to invite Paul to come up, talk to us about some of the work they're doing in fish spams. Great, thanks. So uh, my name is Paul Fernandez. I'm a fisheries scientist at the Lyle Centre, which is an environmental research institute at Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, I spent about 30 years devising various methods of counting fish, 17 years as a scientific civil servant, the Scottish Government's Marine Lab in Aberdeen, 11 years at Aberdeen University in Aberdeen, and I joined Heriot Watt uh, last year in 2022. Today, I'd like to talk to you about the work we've been doing in the NERC Insight programme, to looking at the ecological effects of decommissioning and oil and gas structures. And in particular, our focus is on the effects on fish populations populations. And this is work I've been doing along with my postdoctoral research assistant, Joshua Lawrence. So it's pretty clear and it's well known that man-made marine structures such as oil and gas platforms, they attract fish. In some cases, studies have shown that they have very high productivity, uh, the highest of any uh, area of sea floor of any marine ecosystem in the case of Californian oil and gas platforms. And this has led in some places, in many places actually in America, the Gulf of Mexico, California, Thailand, Australia, what's called a rigs to reef programs, where the oil and gas platforms are repurposed as artificial uh, reefs. However, uh, in the North Sea, this is not the case. We have around more than 500 oil and gas structures, uh, features of which we some in a 2022 publication. Um, however, unlike other regions, the North Sea has no rigs to reef policy, and in most cases, structures must be re removed in accordance with the OSPAR Commission's Directive 98.3. In the early 2000s, a publication showed that there wasn't much in terms of an increase in fish density close to the platform. So much of what we know uh, from our ROV and oil and gas inspections is that the fish are concentrated close to these platforms, and there isn't wasn't much evidence that they dissipate much further than that. Um, however, in 2012, we detected some long range effects and we get aimed to sort of determine the distance at which fish densities are higher than at greater distances with the so-called near field area of influence. And we went out on a ship and measured this area of influence at 16 oil and gas platforms in the North Sea. And this is the kind of data that we found there's depth on the y-axis and distance on the x-axis. In this case, I plotted distance from a, a structure. So we estimated the area of influence of these 16 structures. And what we measured was as a function of distance from the platform on the x-axis here, the average individual fish density from these sonar images. The averages here are higher 
at distances close to the platform. And if you fit a simple linear regression to that, you get a relationship. And you can compare that with what we call the background fish density. And this is uh, fish density well away from these structures. In this case, we um, chose 25 kilometers away, but with similar properties. So at similar latitudes, at similar depths, and on similar substrates. And the substrates we can also measure with our sonar systems. And if you look at the background and you can compare that, you can see that at about 1.5 kilometers, we have much higher densities. And then at further distances, it goes similar or lower than background. And then another case, we found slightly higher uh, areas of influence, but the average was around seven kilometers. So we had these very long range effects that we've measured. It wasn't always the case. There were some platforms where there was little uh, of a relationship at all. Indeed, could be lower than background levels. So there was a lot of variability. And this variability can really be demonstrated by examining one of the structures that we were able to pass over in a separate exercise run by Marine Scotland and Sally Rouse's group, which we analyzed. And on the 25th of June, at half past two in the morning, we saw this big cloud of fish school, herring schools, about 50 meters high and about 200 meters wide. But next day, we went back at more or less the same time of night and, and the fish school's not there. And then we went back the next week and the fish school had reappeared again. And we saw it over successive passes over the course of three or four hours, maintain and persist around the structure. But there's evidence for variability. We then set about as part of the Insight program, developing some new technology for monitoring at sea using uncrewed surface vehicles. About four and a half meters in length, two meters in width, and it does about four knots and it has an endurance of eight days. And it weighs no more than a big jet ski, about 750 kilos. And in this case, it's powered by a diesel generator. There are others which have solar panels and uh, batteries. And the, the important thing about this is that it's commanded over the horizon, beyond sight, as it were, by satellite broadband, which is increasingly becoming available through products like um, Starlink Maritime, uh, and Musk's contribution to ocean broadband connectivity. And it has situational awareness, so it knows where it is uh, through a variety of systems, including AIS and four way cameras are on board that can be transmitted back through broadband and we deployed a fishery sonar on this vehicle and you can see the trailer that it was it was used to, to, to deploy and recover it so anyway, we did a, a survey in the northern north sea and um, this is a four-day survey where we visited six oil platform sites but interestingly we also visited one wind farm and all this took place from the comfort of my desk where we could monitor the vehicle and pilot the vehicle from the comfort of our home very convenient particularly during covid when this took place the fish school density was six times higher inside the wind farm and the non-schooling fish, the cold haddock whiting, those individual fish, they were twice as high um, in the wind farm than in the surrounding 10 kilometers. That's just one transect through one wind farm on one particular day. So we're aiming to confirm these results over the next two years through um, a sister project called EcoWings, which will be monitoring wind farms in and around the Firth of Forth using similar techniques. So just to conclude for now, we have seen that oil and gas platforms have larger near field areas of influence on fish density schools and single targets and larger structures have larger areas of influence. So why is that important? Well it suggests that these structures have longer range influences even though they might be large in number they're small in area but their area of influence in terms of their attraction to fish is, is larger than had been measured before. There is some variability in time and space and some structures do not have near field areas of influence and we're currently trying to understand which ones do which in terms of uh, particularly the ones that don't have areas of influence what are those characteristics? Characteristics. And finally, we sort of developed this new technology, which allows for low risk, low cost and low carbon measurements of fish around all man-made wind structures, including offshore wind farms. Thank you, Paul. And next up is 
Debbie Russell from St Andrews, who's going to talk to us about the EcoStar project, but also um, some of the, some of the work that they're doing over there on, on marine mammals. Yes, yeah, so I'm just uh, going to talk about marine mammals in particular here. So really, I'm going to be talking about a range of work conducted by the Sea Mammal Research Unit, that's SMRU, at the University of St Andrews, along with our collaborators. So first, I wanted to start really with what I viewed when I started looking at the impact of structures in the North Sea as the basics, and that's where structures are, um, what they are, and when they were there. Paul's already touched on this. In terms of the understanding of infrastructure, it's obviously really critical for wind farm impacts, both in terms of learning from impacts of oil and gas, which have obviously been there longer, but also in terms of evaluating potential impacts of wind farms in the context of the hard structure that's already in the environment. The most common answer to this where, what, when question um, is no problem. However, it is a problem. Essentially, we found that there was no comprehensive data set of structures across the North Sea. And the most commonly used ones, which are OSPAR and EMODNET, had considerable emissions in terms of structures not there, but also in terms of locations being yeah, wrong. In comparison, in terms of wind farms, we're already at over 4,000 um, structures associated with wind farms with an unprecedented increase in number. So in terms of understanding what means for or ecological impacts compared to oil and gas is really important. But we're also going further offshore now and also looking at floating. And so we really hope this data set will pave the way for an increased use of oil and gas research to be able to inform the impacts of wind farms. So the next question really for us was, well, okay, here's the here's the uh, structures, but where are the marine mammals? So we related the tracking data for grey and harbour seals to environmental data. By scaling by the distribution on land, we predicted that sea distribution of seals emanating from the UK and Ireland. Um, and I should mention this doesn't include the continental Europe. Similar work has been done for cetaceans, uh, particularly for the SCAN surveys. And as part of the EcoStar project, we're currently investigating the impact of structures on these marine mammal distributions. Why are we interested in the overlap with structures? Well, essentially, we know that these structures can have potential impacts on marine mammals. They're likely to be complex. And if we start with looking at kind of construction, I'm just going to talk about some work that we did uh, in the wash, looking at um, the impact of construction of the lynx wind farm on harbour seal distribution. So this was using um, tag data. And we found really that uh, there was an impact of pile driving on the density of harbour seals within about 25 kilometres. However, it was very short-lived. And so there was no impact uh, during post-pile construction or during operation itself. Now this work is built, work led by Katie White for her PhD and she's been looking at how this redistribution actually was manifested. So what are the changes in behaviour of individuals that resulted in this redistribution and coming up with a dose response curve. Interestingly, despite this change in abundance in the vicinity of the pile driving, there was very high levels of sound predicted heard by the tagged animals, which likely um, resulted in number hearing loss. Now, hearing is important to harbour seals as males use um, hearing, will make sound during breeding blades. So the question really is, well, what does this mean for 
impacts of construction on, on harbour seal. In terms of impacts of construction on behaviour and distribution, we found it was likely limited to pile driving in this case. But to what degree can we generalise these outcomes for elsewhere? So this 25 kilometres. So in recent research, it was demonstrated that the level of pile driving noise that seals would tolerate being around was really dependent on the prey available, available there. So really it's dependent on the motivation. It's not a feeding area. So there really was very low motivation to be within say kilometers. Motivation to be within 25 kilometers during pile driving would have been huge. Essentially, this is the main haul-out of harbour seals in, in the region. And so, essentially, they need to travel from the site to the offshore feeding site. And obviously, uh, the motivation in other areas may differ. In terms of impact going from behavioural impacts to individuals and populations, it's likely really that that translation and to what degree there is an effect, including the piling schedule across wind farms, the importance of the the site of the wind farm and the condition of the impacted um, individuals and population. So really it's context dependent. Okay, so I'm just now going to move on to operational structures. And this has obviously been covered. And moving on to this artificial reef effect that, um, that Paul was really talking about and the degree to which these structures aggregate or produce. So essentially, we also are interested in research. And I really think this is really needed in understand more about what are the top-down impacts. And this could also not just have top-down impacts on prey, um, but also across um, different taxa. So if you think about um, the potential for these areas, wind farms, who potentially exclude other less competitive predators, so including, for example, um, potentially grey seals, excluding harbour seals into the potentially kind of depleted surrounding environment. These factors are really critical to consider, um, particularly for efforts to make structures as appropriate as possible for artificial reefs. But essentially what we're working on at the moment is understanding why harbour seals are declining in the southeast of England. So we think this is unlikely to be due to depletion in prey in general, because grey seals at the same time are increasing very rapidly. So that is one key change. And the other key change is the wind farm development. We're looking to disentangle these potential drivers, both to understand why the decline has occurred, but also the future prognosis. And actually, we have tags on at the moment that show that um, harbour seals are actually going a lot further. They're going out even into the Dogger Bank towards Dogger A. Thanks very much. So um, we have some questions for our panellists. I'm going to start with Cassie, if that's OK. We've got a couple of questions, one, one a bit broader one from Pim from the North Sea Foundation about um, whether there are measures about the offshore wind enabling actions programme available online. And then some, uh, I guess, a follow on question about standards. So where we're looking at the environmental standards work, whether you're doing any work on fish. So there's two or three tied up there. If, if, if you could comment on them, that'd be great. Quite an easy answer to the first question. Yes, there is more information available about the measures. They can be found in a policy statement that was published at the back end of last year when we introduced some of the measures into uh, Parliament. So there's a, a good explanation that you can find if you just type in energy bill, policy statement, uh, DEFRA. It should come up pretty easily. And for the second part of the question, yes, we are looking to try and align as many of the standards as possible with what's happening in the international policy space. We're very much in the development of both these offshore wind environmental standards and uh, the Library of Measures for Compensation. So and nothing's kind of off the cards and, and we are exploring everything at the moment and how that relates to what's going on kind of outside UK waters as well. And I suppose that feeds into the second question on whether kind of fish and specifically cumulative effects of spawning fish 
English will be included in both of those work streams? And the answer is definitely yes, if we feel that there is kind of benefit from including them in the work that we're doing. As I kind of said already, both of those work streams are very much in the kind of design phase. So, you know, if there's enough evidence and we feel that there is benefit in kind of having a standard that protects that receptor and that indeed will kind of smooth out some of the consenting issues that might might be have around that specific receptor, then it's definitely something that we will be looking into. So great. Thanks, Cassie. I, I think it's also worth mentioning while we're talking about the DEFRA work, the sort of broader work that's going on around the offshore wind evidence change program, which is uh, I guess looking to try and bring in evidence sources from work that's, that's funded through that program, but also programs like EcoWind, which many of the Insight PIs are part of, which mm. itself is building on the Insight works. There's a sort of big body of evidence that's kind of and that's definitely something that we'll be drawing on. And we are commissioning kind of specific projects, um, bespoke projects to do with specifically on the standards work, which is what I lead on. You know, we wanted more information about blade painting. So we kind of commissioned a project to that effect. But we are drawing on all of this evidence that other people are kind of taking forward outside of government, specifically on the uh, evidence and change programme. And they will definitely feed into the work that we're doing. Great. So I've got a question next for Chrysia. So Chrysia, one from Danwood CFAS. Um, have you looked at the effect or impact of the hard substrate on the functioning of the surrounding substrate, recognising that people argue that the percentage change is relatively small? So there's a couple of questions there. I know you're looking at what that percentage change is, which should be in interesting, but also what is the change in ecological functionality? And um, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear your views on that as well. I think um, that that is something that we plan to look at. It's quite difficult to go around turbines with a grab, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely something that we're interested in. But the first question that we have is exactly, you know, how, how much extra habitat is being formed because we lose a certain amount of soft sediment but what is replaced in terms of hard substrata habitat is much greater there's an increase in habitat availability but a different type of habitat likely to be an increase in biomass that that's supporting and that biomass is going to feed into the sedimentary environment as well so all those mussels are going to be dropping shell and fecal and pseudo fecal material into the seabed and I think in the, the southern north sea we might not see a massive effect of that but as you go into deep deeper water, if you get an accumulation of all of that shell and fecal matter and organic material, possibly around some of these floating wind farms, um, then the, there is potential for quite a change in functioning of the seabed there. So de definitely something that I would like to look into. The thing about the percentage change in habitat being small, I think when you read environmental impact assessment reports, it's always expressed as percentage of the area as a whole. And it always comes out with really small figures which at the moment perhaps that's valid but I'm not sure how valid those kind of assessments are when you start to scale up and look at the um, the scale of development that with, with what the North Sea might look like in 2050 if we are to be restricted to certain areas of the seabed for development and if we're going to meet those targets for renewable energy development as well. So Paul, Dan's question on whether offshore wind farms are increasing the overall population or only aggregating around certain points which which is, I guess, relevant for oil and gas structures as well, tied in with Francesca's question about the area of influence. Actually, it'd be good if you could just expand on that a little bit as well. We have colleagues from the um, Strathclyde University, uh, Dougie Spears and Mike Keith, who are uh, essentially ecosystem modelers, and they're putting together a spatial individual-based model of a fish population, and they're going to use the empirical data that we've supplied to 
um, model these fish populations and try and understand and distinguish the effects of production versus aggregation and see which of those two scenarios with the inclusion of oil and gas structures at the sort of level that we have in the North Sea would most likely explain the kind of results that we're getting. So I can't presuppose what those results will show, but that's what we're working on right now in the sort of concluding parts of this, this insight project. So all I can say is watch this space, but it is a very important question that we're trying to address through this modeling exercise. And then I think there was a question about the area of influence because and, I, and the reason that's relevant is because you know so what um, initially when you think about even if there's 550 odd oil and gas structures there's still a very small footprint if you just consider the the structures themselves but if we do have these areas of influence that are uh, you know ranges of up to well up, you know the range was an average seven but it was between 0.8 and 23 kilometers and it's interesting to understand why it would be so long but if they are much bigger then the area becomes you know a bit more significant and then as you in increase the wind farms it, it, it gets more significant you know we're not collecting data on the physics in insight but we are in eco wings and other projects are as you know Pelagio Beth Scott's projects doing a lot of work on that and Rod Forster at, at the University of Hull has done a fair amount of work because he's a primary productivity expert and he thinks that there is some effect of, of these wind farms on primary productivity and clearly that will influence particularly if there's been if they're there for some time it'll influence the um the pelagic fish, which do tend to feed on plankton. But the interesting thing with our results is that we separated pelagic fish, which are largely planktivorous, from the demersal fish, the individual, um, individual targets, as it were, the demersal fish like cod haddock and whiting, which don't feed on plankton at that sort of stage. And they, they are the ones that we found these long-range effects for. That, that We found effects for the schooling fish. They weren't quite as long-range and they weren't quite as significant, although they were. So, so I think it's important. Clearly the physics is important, but I think the, the, the community structure around, around these physical um, changes to the habitat are probably what's driving a lot of these. Thanks, Paul. Um, I think you're right to mention the work that's going on in EcoWind. Also, we're in the process of talking to NERC about a floating version of EcoWind. We want to understand those ecological interactions, but also that bo those bottom-up drivers are super important in, in helping us understand that. So it needs to sort of all be tied together. I actually had a question for, for Debbie based on some of some of your work, I guess, Paul, whether that whether that area of influence, if you're seeing that extend with the fish communities, how much that will affect harbour seal behavior i guess and whether there is something about the gray seal versus the harbor seal dynamics interacting with some of the work that paul's finding i don't know debbie whether you whether you were you thinking about any of that or not. so gray seals are, are are much bigger than harbor seals and they could potentially kind of exclude harbor seals from individual turbines and we have seen even in the current tagging that we're doing that there is use of some individual turbines so again i think it comes back to i guess not just the area of influence but the the attraction production and if if there is you know still a lot of fish kind of in the surrounding areas of the wind farms i mean that's probably you know only that can only be really a good thing if it's if it's not just concentrated uh, within the wind farms itself i think you know it, it's really for the wash itself where we're kind of focusing on at the moment there's been such massive change in the dynamics there so it's gone from kind of you know one gray seal for every 10 harbor seals to 10 gray seals for every one harbor seal that's the level of increase of gray seals so i think the there could be bigger effects there in terms of to what degree the, the gray seals can compete the harbor seals and how that interacts with wind farms is is a big question then obviously you've got harbour pore poison and everything else there as well so I think it's really interesting because in terms of Paul's work as well in, in the production aggregation is really that in areas that are so close to to seal haul house I'm just not sure um how 
those could be sustainable in terms of um, areas that, that that aggregate. I mean, I don't know. It's something that we're looking at at the moment is are the very near wind farms, the ones that are very near haulouts, you know, Sheringham Shoals very near haulout. And it was very early on that we saw these animals using the Sheringham Shoal. But is that still the case? Or is Sheringham Shoal kind of been cleared out, if you like? Or, or you know, it's, it's, it's a really, yeah, there's lots of parts to it. Thanks, Debbie. And I guess another important ecological interaction is with human uses of the sea and someone has put in can we distinguish between trawling pre- reduction in trawling pressure for example and aggregation effects uh and i'm sure paul that's something you've spent quite a lot of your life sort of thinking about yeah well the first point is that you know the the exclusion zones around oil and gas structures is only 500 meters the ranges we were finding were much longer than that so that's one point uh the other point is that we do know that fishermen target these areas and now we know why <laughs> um they often trawl over pipelines as well as being very close to oil and gas structures. But the point that Ewan makes, thanks Ewan for your question, you know, most of these oil and gas structures are um, not in sandy substrates, uh, at least the ones we just we sort of studied in the Northern North Sea, but many of the wind farms barns are. So we didn't detect many sand eels and we're able to distinguish sand eels from clupeids, uh, sprout and herring, can't, can't separate those two. But um, but sand eels, we are able to distinguish and we didn't see many sand eels in and around oil and gas structures, but we did see them in and around the wind farms. And that's not surprising because they are on sand. So the Eco Wings project and Eco Wind will, will, will uh, shed a lot more light on on those kind of issues i think great thank you paul um so i'm going to come back to you christian we've got we've got a question um about changing community structure and um this question often gets asked um about the concerns about offshore structures facilitating the spread of invasive species and particularly with some of the diagrams that you showed earlier about what the extent of sort of that infrastructure could could look like it's obviously a risk isn't it and um i'm just interested if i guess the challenge is quantifying the significance of that risk it's not something we're addressing specifically here in hull and i also i haven't seen a lot of data to suggest that this is happening at the moment. But then I would say that most of the data uh, that we have from what's growing on wind turbines is is video data, and you can't see in amongst all the animals. So one of the things that we've been doing here is, um, this is some work led by Rodney Forster. He, he's been taking mussel scrapes from turbines, and he's been working on the mussels, and others in our team have been sieving those out and looking at the infauna associated with that. So uh, whilst I haven't seen much evidence of it, or I haven't seen much in the literature either, but then I haven't looked specifically (laughs) on invasive species, I I think partly it may not have been sampled effectively, or it's not happening at the moment, but it definitely is a a potential risk when you scale up the the development to our sort of 2050 targets. I think that that connectivity question is really interesting as well, isn't it? That we were were talking the other day about Lothelia and how there is an argument that says that Lophelia wouldn't be in the places that it we currently find it on structures if those structures weren't there because of yeah. settlement for them. And there's a sort of question about coming back to what is what's the biodiversity we want. Yeah, I think I think you know we are working in a degraded system. So enhancing biodiversity is something that we need to do. And we're talking about net gain and everything, but net gain of, of what? What can we feasibly put in as as habitat and biodiversity net gain? Before all of that happens, I think there's a real need to understand what the implications are because once it's in, it's going to be very difficult to get all that infrastructure out again if we find out that we've made a massive error in our judgment about 
about that. But it's not just, you know, the immediate effects around the turbines, it's all of the wider ecosystem effects Debbie and Paul have, have talked about as well. Thanks, Christian. Um, and just, I'm going to open the next question out. There's one from Pim from the North Sea Foundation on whether anyone has a view on the added nature straight biodiversity value on the hard structures. This is like the million dollar question. Uh, he talks about a Belgian rheology professor who recently advocated for decommissioning because the ecological value of epifaunal growth is a false argument. The assemblage is mainly opportunistic species. So I think a lot of the work that's gone on in Insight and in EcoWind and in various other kind of bits of the OWEP program is looking to understand the ecological effects. So we talk about ecological effects rather than whether things are good or bad, because sometimes it's just good to understand what the change is. And I just sort of wondered whether Paul, Debbie, Cassie, whether... Um, because you've talked about this quite a lot, whether, whether there is you have a view on, on that at all. I steer clear of advocacy, I have to say. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I, I just provide evidence and I think it's for others to decide what to do with it. But I wouldn't agree that the assemblages are opportunistic. I don't see Lophelia as being opportunistic, for example. The persistence that we see, although it's variable, does suggest that there is enhanced productivity, if not a, a, a local aggregation. So do with that evidence as you wish but it's not for us to decide but not for me anyway <laughs> very well put paul i think they, yeah yeah i mean i think so i mean i agree with paul it's not our role to, to advocate for a particular option i think that obviously and we can only think about the evidence for the current situation not kind of what happens long term as structures degrade and and kind of looking after them in perpetuity. I think at the moment there's it's, it's very complex, clearly. And for some for some species, the the structures may be good. For some, they may not be good. And I I think at the moment that answering that general question, it really depends on what the goal is, and then trying to trying to understand what do we need to do to be able to answer that question. So I think there is a lot still more needed in terms of both from the policy science side of understanding exactly what the questions are that need to be answered because without that then it's just kind of creating more and more information but maybe not the right information no unfortunately um, yeah, i don't think i'd be able to take a view one way or another at the moment unsurprisingly this is still a very live policy question but i think it's interesting that there's obviously lots of work and appetite in this space and just interesting to know that a direction you know ought to be set sooner rather than later it definitely will but it's a very live issue and there's you know lots of considerations and working with you know sncbs places that people like in natural england etc on on what are our conservation objectives in mpas for example what do we want them to be are we are we interested in maintaining the baseline or actually is our our goals much larger than that so yeah it's good it's good to know there's appetite for this question and, and work is being done but i can't give you a, a, a less civil service answer than that unfortunately yeah i, I, I guess it's, it is worth sort of noting that the the streams of work that are going on across the administrations at the moment that are looking at how do you mitigate and compensate for some of the impacts but also how do we deliver restoration on top of that and the key to that restoration question is is restoring to what um and a lot of the work going on within insight and eco and other places is contributing to, to what we want that to be yeah, I guess I just wanted to kind of add in for completeness that, I mean, we talk about kind of restoration. And I think one of the key things as well is kind of not just what is the current baseline or what the baseline should have been, but what would the baseline be in the future in terms of climate change? 
and especially without wind farms. And so in terms of thinking about benefit or not benefit to species of structures, it's really, it's, it's even more tricky because obviously it's not just about current baselines, it's about past and future. Yeah, that that's a really important point. And I think you'll see in all the new big marine research programmes that come out, or have a stock raise in, in the context of changing baselines for climate change, because that's really key. Thank you very much to our panellists today. I think it's been another great webinar with some really interesting discussion at the end. So thank you very much for contributing and, and talking to us.